1: Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. This week, we meet comedian Juliet Burton, who talks to us about mental health. We also meet Eunice Olomidi, supermodel and fashion designer, who explains just why the fashion industry isn't how you think it is. And we, of course, announce our Badass of the Week.
0: Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one prepares.
1: Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio.
2: One, two, three, four...
1: So they say that laughter is the best medicine and it can help everyone else. I also think that kindness is a pretty good cure too. And we are lucky enough to have in the studio with us now, Juliet Burton, uh, who on comedian Juliet Burton, who's on her new tour, which is all about how we should be more kind to each other. Juliet, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are
3: so inspiring. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. What a
1: lovely thing to start us off with. Thanks so much. So... I'm going to talk to you about the tour and about kindness but first of all I want to talk to you about how you got into comedy tell us that story sure uh, right well
3: I uh, first used to be a, a radio broadcast journalist uh, I mean <laughs> oh. our future is in front of our <laughs> eyes well, yeah, yeah. Uh, no I, I, I used to be a journalist because uh, I didn't get any A-levels because uh, I fell out of education which I'm sure we'll get onto to later um, but I uh, ended up being a journalist because turned um, out <laughs> you didn't need to have any A-levels for that uh, and true. I I also did love it, um, but I didn't quite fit in. I ended up doing voiceover work, and then voiceover work led to acting. And then acting uh, led to me realizing that if I wanted any good parts as a woman, I needed to write my own stuff. And if I was going to write my own stuff, I found myself laughing uh, a lot and wanting to make other people laugh. Um, And I very quickly found out that if I made people laugh, I could talk about maybe darker subjects and darker experiences that I've been through. And if I made people laugh, they might listen for a little bit longer. So then I ended up working in comedy and it's been many many years uh, but this is my first proper national tour which I'm really excited about so sold out the last four years in a row in Edinburgh every single show which is amazing and bigger and bigger venues which is lovely um,
1: and yeah it's coming to London
3: so I loved
1: what you said there about um feeling like you didn't fit in because that seems to be a bit of a theme for comedians generally they see the world differently And actually, it's only when they have a platform to be able to make the world laugh at it. That their view is heard, as opposed to everyone being a bit like, uh. well, comedy's meant to tread like uh, the
3: the fringes of society, like between what's acceptable to say and what's not acceptable to say, and it's it's all about trying to find a new twist on an old idea. Um, so building up tension and then twisting it around within mm-hmm. the story, the setup, punchline, gag. Um, and I love comedy because um, it's a tension relief, and I am a great source of tension to my family, uh, and most of my friends, and myself. Uh, so being able to relieve that tension with laughter is. Is a really powerful thing, and um, yeah, I think that being able to say things that are uh, unacceptable to some people, or perhaps uh, perhaps the subject matter is difficult to to handle without. A lightness of touch um, for me comedy is definitely the, the light in the darkness and my mind can take me to some really dark places and my life is taking me to some quite dark places and I think being able to seek out the light is almost like a survival technique really and I think that's the for a lot of not only comedians but just all of us um, being able to have a have a laugh and find find the light um, especially in the sort of times that we're living in right now absolutely
4: so, what the, what are the topics that you touch on in terms of your your show? You're saying that you talk about some darker topics, and you try and bring some humour, and in, in the hope that you can talk about those topics a bit longer. What are the sort of topics that you that um are ins- inspire your show?
3: So, the first time uh, that I started doing comedy, I didn't talk about this stuff. But in the last few years, more and more, I've spoken about my mental health conditions, uh, and that's something that's still uh, it. it it isn't the only topic i talk about within the shows um, and this particular show uh, also covers uh, kindness which which again, again i'm sure we're going to get onto uh but with my mental health it's always going to um, it's always going to sort of colour my view on the world. So I uh, I was sectioned when I was 17 and I was spent my 18th birthday in hospital sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Um, I was in and out of hospital throughout my teenage years um, and I spent uh, most of my teenage years getting more and more diagnoses uh, for, for different conditions. Um, and looking back I was probably undiagnosed in my childhood with like anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and problems with food. Um, and I was, when I was 14, that was my first diagnosis was of um, anorexia and that's what led me to being sectioned. And when I was sectioned, I had uh, hallucinations. Um, so the stress of being sectioned because when you're sectioned, I don't know if you know... For anyone
1: who doesn't know. Y- yes. So
3: being, being sectioned under the Mental Health Act is like being detained. A psychosis is having audible and visual hallucinations. And um, I'm now an ambassador for Rethink Mental Illness and one of their campaigns at the moment is calling for reform uh, to the Mental Health uh, Act. Um, so when you get sectioned, under the Mental Health Act, you don't have any rights... Um, and they would like, with their campaign 35 days to 35 years, they'd like to reform uh, the, that uh, because when you get sectioned, when I got sectioned, I didn't have any rights and the stress of not being explained what was happening to me, that led to me having um, a quite un, quite avoidable um, psychosis perhaps. So um, so yeah, I've collected a lot of labels, um, got more labels than TK Maxx uh, <laughs> and I, I like making people laugh about it because um, I've found that actually it, it seems to matter uh, to people that the people when i first started doing comedy about my mental health i was so scared terrified um of what people would think of me um i was raising money at the time for mind because the mental health charity mind uh because it was 10 years to the the year that i got sectioned and um i thought i needed to tell the audiences why we would we'd chosen this this charity and coming out was so scary and nowadays it's almost like it's a selling point that people <laughs> want to come and laugh at me talking about my <laughs> mental health uh experiences because it gives them permission to laugh at themselves and their own experiences
1: and gives them permission to talk and be more open what's it like to repeatedly talk about stuff that was traumatic for you so um I am a huge fan of Hannah Gadsby and her special special on Netflix, Nanette, in which she talks about her own kind of journey through life and a lot about her mental health and about her sexuality and about the incredible abuse that she suffered along the way. And, um, you know, she said that psychiatrists see her as a test case because they don't know what it's going to be like to repeat those experiences every night live on stage. For you, what is that like? Well, um... I'm not gonna lie, there's different layers to yeah.
3: it um so the first the first kind of time that I built a routine that was really solid around my mental health conditions um that routine is great, and uh the butt of the joke is it is always either the condition or the misconceptions people might have yeah. about mental illness um and then and then I started finding that uh there's still a lot of stigma. I'd come off stage and I'd repeatedly be asked the same questions again and again and again. So then the next uh, batch of uh, routines I put together was tackling th- that stigma that I I encountered. Um, and then there's the next layer of that people seem to assume that because I'm talking about it, it means I'm magically cured. And actually, I still live with my eating disorders and my anxiety disorder and my depression and my bipolar disorder. Um, they're all still there in my head and I'm still battling with them as well as my inner critic and my and my self-doubt and and on top of that you have reviewers who maybe sometimes are a little bit patronizing or sometimes misunderstanding where you're going with it or there's there's so many layers to uncover with it so it is a constant source of of absurdity i think like we the very world that we're living in at the moment is far more insane than I ever think I was. <laughs> uh, so being able to to speak from that fringes that we we're speaking about for, earlier on, like being being committed, detained, um, it, it kind of puts you in the box of outcast anyway. So comedy is a natural home because we're all of us trying to look from the outside in to the insanity of the world that we're living in. So I just maybe have more credentials than some others. Um, and I, I is, it is interesting. And I also would say comedy is not therapy. Um, and if you need therapy, go to therapy. Don't get up on stage and start <laughs> talking into a microphone. Um, unless they're not laughing, in which case I will still call my my comedy therapy. <laughs> uh, but I, I love I love doing it and I still have a therapist. So um, I still processed the raw stuff that I still i am feeling too raw with that goes to therapy with me and the stuff that once i've processed it and i've learned to distance myself a little bit and i'm laughing at it that's when it comes with me to comedy um but there is some dissonance there's there's a lot of there's a big there's a very strange gap that i think you're, you're touching on with people like hannah gadsby and, yeah. and now myself as well i um i tend to put a lot of sparkles on on stage and wear a hell of a lot of sequins and uh when the going gets tough, the tough gets sparkly, and uh, sometimes it's really lovely to uh, to be a bit more real. Sometimes the sparkles give you permission to be more real.
5: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask what are the what were the questions that people would ask that showed that, <laughs> that, they're, that that they were ultimately judging you or they had their own um barriers or, or, or you know the discussion around stigma, what were the sorts of things that they'd ask you?
3: Well, i wouldn't want to put off anyone from coming to chat to me afterwards because mm-hmm. asking questions is is the best thing mm-hmm. um and not being afraid to ask questions but uh having said that uh the things that i i still get frustrated by are things like uh, when did you get better mm-hmm. um what was the one thing that caused it um do you blame your parents mm-hmm. for it um how can you be ill? You don't look ill. The classic and the very first time that I started building a routine was after a guy, <laughs> usually a guy, uh, yeah. said to me afterwards, um, mental illness is, isn't an illness, it's an attention seeking ploy. Wow. Which I didn't think, I didn't really believe that people still felt that way. Um, like when I was in my teens and being diagnosed, I, I got that attitude of, oh, it's attention seeking, you're just doing it for attention. Um, I, I got that quite a lot. But... Um, but this was sort of 2015, 2014 that I had people saying that to me. I I have that less now, um, but I still do get, oh, I don't understand why you've got a problem with your image. I mean, you're a very pretty girl, which is very lovely and sweet and they think they're helping, but looks change and fade and I am not my looks and mental illness has nothing to do with our bodies. It's about how we exist within them and our relationship to the outside world and it's nuanced and... It's not very soundbited to say that, I guess. So, But yeah. I was going to ask that oh, yeah. question. I was going to ask that question. Yeah, keep question. asking
5: questions. Um, <laughs> which was uh, about the, the one thing. So you said that you were diagnosed with OCD. That was one of my diagnoses. One yeah. of them. And so the thing that automatically went off in my mind was, well, was that the first thing that was undiagnosed? And then that was then connected to food? Because I think... I, I've got cousins who won't eat tomatoes or will only eat red things or will only eat Weetabix or will only eat chips and that progresses over time. So I was al- already trying to do that analysis in my own head mm. and I think it's, it's natural to do that if you're curious.
1: We're yeah. going to think about it. Sure. And Let's take about, a, a little break. break. So. <laughs> take yeah. a little break while we think about it. Uh, we are going to be talking, continuing to talk to Juliet Burton, comedian, about mental health and comedy and the link between them two here on Badass Women's Hour Excel.
2: Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking.
1: Welcome back to Badass Women's XL with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton, a little bit Duffy. In the studio, we have Juliet Burton, comedian, and just shedding a total light on mental health, I think, for all of us tonight. Uh, Before the break, we were asking about the links between OCD and eating disorders. Juliet, how did that work for you? Right, so uh, when I was um, a child,
3: I... I first started exhibiting problems with food, um, Mm. but I think that was mainly linked to anxiety disorder that was undiagnosed. Um, But this is all kind of looking back retrospectively and it's very freeing now to be able to say to myself, it doesn't really matter why, what caused it, because I can delve into that for as much as I like. All that really matters is what I'm dealing with right now. Mm. Um, I've, I, For me, I think that I like to think of my mental health conditions as, as a tree because I've had multiple diagnoses and I think of it as like there's a trunk of the tree, so maybe that's the anxiety disorder, and that then linked off, or my bipolar, to be sorry, more correct, that then split off into anxiety and depression and as t- coping tools uh, to cope with the anxiety, I developed obsessive-compulsive disorder other anxiety-related conditions like body dysmorphic disorder, which is a problem with how I perceive my body uh, at times of great stress and anxiety, Um, and also a different... uh, uh, Like my anorexia, my bulimia, my compulsive overeating disorder, they are all linked to anxiety, problems with managing anxiety disorder um, so it, I think I think they're all interlinked and linked, interwoven um, but they are not me and I am more than they are uh, I am who I am because of and in spite of those conditions um, and the great thing with uh, mental illness is that it, <laughs> the great thing with being mentally <laughs> ill um, is that it's, uh, I think it teaches you a lot, it teaches you empathy, it teaches you the power of kindness, it also teaches you uh, a lot about what it means to be human and flawed and fallible and how resilient we are because actually I think all of us really have we all have mental health we all have mental yep. well-being we either have a good mental health or bad mental health on a day-to-day basis
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned there the importance of kindness. Yeah, your new show is all about kindness. Yes. Uh, Tell us why that is.
3: Uh, Right. Kindness is a very important thing to me. I think kindness can be life-saving. I know that small acts of kindness have uh, meant that that on certain days when I felt like I was drowning with my mental health conditions, um, I am not alone. There's actual faith and humanity out there still, even in this day and age. Um, And if I focused on it, the more I, more I focused on it, the more I got, the more I gave, the more I received, the more I just picked up on it it is everywhere um last year i had a bit of a, a difficult year and uh this is not that much better uh but i professionally it's going brilliantly uh so i i was struggling to cope and I thought I needed to find new meaning in my life so I tried to not only be kinder to other people but also tried to be kind to myself which my therapist kept telling me to do and I really <laughs> didn't know how to do it uh, so that is why I went off on this quest to do uh, as many random acts of kindness as I possibly could to see whether it could change my world the world other people's world um, I even know a guy that um, up in Edinburgh Fringe when I flyered uh, whenever I fly her up there you fly up to sell your show you chat to people um, I like to really get to to know one person at a time when I'm doing that and make them feel really valued because they are I feel alone most of the time and this one guy that I met came to see my show the next day came to see my show the following year and then he said because I have really loyal fans. Uh, he, they, he said the second time I met him, that the first day I flied him, uh, he'd been planning on committing suicide. Oh, wow. Uh, but the way that I chatted mm-hmm. to him felt like the first act of kindness that anyone had shown him in a really long time. So he felt obligated to come see the show. <laughs> That's how I get give people like guilt <laughs> turned him into it. Uh, and then he said he found the show so uplifting that he changed his mind,
4: wow. which is
3: Better than any five-star review or a comedy award, although I'm not going to turn down any five-star reviews or comedy awards. Uh, So kindness can save lives. Mm. And
4: how was the acts of kindness? Did you you notice a difference in your mental health from from focusing on these acts of kindness and giving...
3: Yes, More. absolutely. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it. It definitely didn't cure uh, the conditions, um, but it does give me, on a day-to-day basis, it helps me focus on something outside of myself, which helps me get away from the damaging thoughts that might spiral into my disorders, um, and start in, in uh, sort of, yeah, he- helping my behaviour become damaging as well as my thoughts. Um, so, kindness for me, doing acts of kindness is a way of getting strength um it's not weak to be empathetic or to show kindness i believe it's a strong thing and a resilient thing to uh, to do kind things and my audiences have taught me that because in the show we um i invite audiences to come up with suggestions of ways to be kind and they write them on pieces of paper on the way into the show and then they are then passing those on to my future audiences so each audience member is daring a complete stranger at a future show to do a random act of kindness they've come up with mm. um, and I've been typing all these up as I go along and going on tour and it's just so heartwarming uh, it really has just when you're when you're doubting I, I have I need, I'm meant to be writing this book at the moment about it because uh, looking through these suggestions people are creative and kind and incredible what are your top three top three um, I would say uh, laughing loudly at a comedy show is always a good one um, also uh, I think my f- another favourite one was um, putting together a care package for people who are, home, are currently without a home um, so putting a care package together um, and and sending a goat to an African uh, family, a family, not an African family, a family in, uh, in, a, a, in a country that needs help. And uh, so this person sent me a card from Oxfam saying, I did this and here's the card. And they've sent the goat to not to your venue. They've sent it to the family in, <laughs> that needs it. Uh, and yeah, things like that where people have gotten a little bit more inventive and creative.
1: Juliet, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank it's you so, so lovely chatting people want to find you, where should they be looking? Uh, www.juliette.co.uk
3: uh, I'm on Twitter at Juliet Burton, Instagram Juliet underscore Burton and Facebook Juliet Burton Writer Performer. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
4: The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk
2: Radio.
1: We are very lucky to have in the studio with this evening, the fabulous Eunice Olomidi MBE. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Uh, brilliant. So for anyone who doesn't know you, you are a bit of a fashion powerhouse. You started in the fashion industry age 16. I did. Tell us how that happened.
6: Um, it was really strange, actually. I got scouted quite a few times. First of all, I was scouted in Scotland by an agency called Select. Mm-hmm. And then I, I literally grew up in a council estate. Um, and I think sometimes when you're outside of large cities, you don't actually realize that these are real jobs and this is a real <laughs> career. So I was like, this isn't real. This is not a real thing. And then I got scouted about another three times. So it was actually on the fourth occasion that I decided to to give it a go and just see see what it was about. And it turns out, wow, it's actually a real job. <laughs> it's actually a real occupation that you can get paid to do. So I thought, OK, let me give it a try. And it actually, it was really good for me. It gave me an opportunity to travel the world and to see things I'd never seen. And at that time, I had quite a lot of insecurities because I grew up in Scotland. Obviously, there's not a lot of people of colour. So... Yeah. Strangely enough, the fashion industry gets quite a bit of a bashing, but people forget that it doesn't discriminate along class and it doesn't discriminate in many ways. And actually, it's one of the only industries in the world where women gets paid the same amount of money or more to do the same job as a man. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: So tell us a little bit about what it's like as a young model, because I'm, in my head it's basically America's Next Top Model. You're living in glamorous <laughs> yeah. houses. There are makeovers left, right, and centre. Uh, is that the reality? Uh,
6: no. <laughs> <laughs> it's um. Funnily enough, there's a quote that my publisher decided to put on the back of my book, and I find it quite funny, where I was comparing being a fashion model to being a professional footballer. Because it's pretty much the same journey in a way, believe it or not, because you're really young. A lot of footballers start really, really young. They get flown off somewhere. They don't know what they're doing. They're out there, they're competing, they're trying hard. They might get signed to a team or an agent, or you might not. If you get signed to that agent or a team, you will then be transferred, or you will then have to sign to other agencies across the world. So your first agent becomes your mother agent. You'll then acquire uh, modelling agencies in the major fashion capitals, so New York, Paris, Milan, etc. You might pick up some in other places. But none of these confirm that you're going to make any money or you're going to work. You will then work really hard and show that you're brilliant. And if you manage that, you might get some paid work. If you manage to pick up a decent campaign, so if you're a footballer, if you score in your first professional game, (laughs) then you're guaranteed your place for a little while. But that's not definite, because basically (laughs) as a fashion model, you have to perform every single time same as a footballer like you it doesn't matter if you were brilliant last year if you're not on the pitch and scoring you're not going to stay in the game and it's the same as being a fashion model you have to continuously book the top campaigns the best catwalk shows to have a profile and to be to have access to better jobs so it's highly competitive extremely competitive industry probably one of the most in the world i would say only because unlike things like acting and football talent does matter whereas obviously in fashion it's much more sub object, subjective I'd say because you could be competing with somebody who isn't very good but they have a certain look which mm. is in at that time or is popular so they could replace you even though you might be better at walking or posing or or whatever else so fashion is quite different because talent is important but not always essential mm. um, in some cases if you're Become what I call a working model, meaning you might not be like a household name, but you you've made a living from it. Um, you. It can be good to be talented and good at your job, because then, you know, a client knows, OK, I'll book you because I know that if anything goes wrong on my show, you can save the day. If another model that's young doesn't make it on a catwalk, you're going to come and change four times and it's nothing to you. So occasionally it can be beneficial to be really good at your job, but essentially every season you're in direct competition with people who've had no experience whatsoever.
5: Wow. No. What is the life of a working model? What does that actually mean? Is it is it just runways? Is it, is it just, you know, shoots and campaigns what is it? It is kind of opaque
6: unless you watch uh, America's Next Sorry. Top Model or Britain and Ireland's Next Top Model. I kind of feel like it's deliberately like that and, and it helps, it adds the clandestine nature the exclusivity that mm. people don't really know much about it so that's actually part of the reason that I wrote the book so there's a number of different categories of models. Most people are familiar with the editorial and the fashion models which is sort of like our prestige that's the girls that book, you know, Valencia and Versace, whereas actually the models that tend to make the most money on average are not girls that do fashion and are not girls that walk the runway. Mm. They're actually mm. girls who are defined as commercial, uh, also falls into advertising or lifestyle modelling. And a lot of the time you're you're shooting for things like George Asda or B&Q or footlocker or boots or you know really everyday products now it sounds a bit crazy but if you think about it it makes sense because these are household products that we use every single day Mm -hmm. you're much more likely to book a tv advert something that's going to give you you know constant income and residual income when you're doing commercial work so it's a bit of a myth that you know the fashion editorial girls make all the money actually a lot of the time they just make the agency or the company look really good, but the mm. girls, what we call the money girls, are not necessarily work that you're going to display to say, look at, look at my girls. <laughs> but they're the girls that are actually bringing in a lot of the money most of the time.
1: Right. i feel like that's much like a lot of freelance jobs there's the stuff you do that's the really cool exciting stuff yeah there's all the uh, stuff you do you don't know, talk about that brings in the yeah. cash yeah. definitely but definitely.
4: you're not just you haven't just been a model have you i was researching you today and dun 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 you've done <laughs> doing so much stuff but i think it's really interesting so from from modeling you then got into fashion design is that right you yeah. set up your own label
6: yeah it was it was actually quite random I actually only started designing because obviously I'm from the hood yet (laughs) and uh, so I'd go to these events and I couldn't keep up with the the style and the the fashion and the amount of money that people were spending to look fabulous so I just started making my own clothes because I just wanted to make sure I was wearing something that nobody else was wearing and I wanted to stand out so it started out not deliberately trying to make a collection but I made this collection and Italian Vogue, an amazing lady called Francesca Rosone, she picked it up, she published it in Italian Vogue. So then I started just doing collaborations with companies like Puma and then Avisu and just doing one-off pieces for them. So that's kind of how I got into designing Um, But I wouldn't really describe myself as a designer. I mean, I do design products, and I have brought them to market, but it's like being a DJ. Like, everyone's a DJ, but there's a (laughs) difference between being a designer and designing. So I tend to just do collaborations. I've created, like, my own sunglasses range, which was consigned to the V&A, actually, in Dundee, which is quite exciting. Um, And, yeah, I do that. And um, I kind of fell into the arts through fashion, met a lot of influential artists through designers like Vivian Westwood who thought I was a bit of a legend because we share the same ideology, <laughs> basically, on a save in the world type mission, do right? Secret still. So, yeah, and then they nominated me to start an art gallery. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about art. And they were like, that's why we like you. And I was like, you wow. people do not need me to represent you. I've seen your stuff. In the Heathrow Airport, do you know what I mean. You are not want to <laughs> And he was like, "Nah, but I heard you talk, and you're like talking about use." Well, it was more like, "Well, I like, heard you talk, you and You're talking about transformational powers and saving the world, and that's what we want for our art." Gosh, darn it! And I was like, "Nice one." You get me? Um, so yeah, I totally believe that art has transformational powers, and um, there are practically no people of colour, never mind women. Um, in art, uh, the greater art market, which is quite fascinating to me. And I just got mm-hmm. dropped right in at the deep end. And I was just like, I didn't even know. My, I was like, how am I going to run this business? They were like, right, well, you know, we'll give you 75% and we'll tell you everything. I was like, all right, so. <laughs> so next minute, I'm about freezing the VIP and I don't even know what that is. And I'm like, there. But my the work that I do in terms of art, um, the gallery I run, Old Gallery London, based in South, is more about. Um, making sure that art is available to everyday people because we're in a situation where most art is made by working class people but it's acquired, sold and enjoyed by people from more affluent uh, upper class backgrounds so Mm. there's a bit of a juxtaposition and it's quite fascinating. It's actually the best thing I would say about um, educating yourself and skilling yourself up as high as possible in different industries is you can see the similarities and you can see so I could just like now I'm thinking to myself it's almost like you know artists are almost like musicians or rappers because like you know yeah. they're they're making their music and a lot of the time they're not coming from the best background but the promoters and the people that are really making the money off of it are coming from a totally opposite side mm. of the track so I just kind of got into art to fill that gap
1: and yes, I particularly loved what you were saying about realising that there just aren't, let alone women of colour, there aren't people of colour in the art industry. How is the industry going about changing that, do you think?
6: I don't think the arts are doing anything at all to change it. <laughs> I don't think they're even bothered. I think they're just like, oh they can't see us wicked we'll just keep doing what we're doing and we won't tell anyone and they won't notice so i i don't know what's really going on in the, in the world cuz obviously art is clearly created by everybody yeah. uh but it's just an industry that's highly exclusive um a lot of uh capital and equity goes through it and there's there's various different economic uh, social reasons that it is the way it is so for me i found it quite fascinating quite like disrupting the natural order, which is one of the perks of being an Afro scot so I just don't don't really care basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, not really bored. I'm like, I'm here. And it's happening. <laughs> so you better start and like, oh she's Scottish What's going on? And then they're coming up, like, Oh, wow, darling, darling, are, are you are you actually are you Scottish? Oh my God. She's freaking Scottish <laughs> <laughs> Or you're you're you I'm I swear that girl, what's your accent? You're from Scotland, right? Uh, fam, yo, like, come here, come, come. <laughs> this girl is from Scotland and she's black. Like, well, it stands to reason they've got black English people that have black Scottish people too. Sorry. <laughs> I'll let you off. It's fine.
5: You know. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, listening to you I, I, and, and looking at you, I'm like... This, this really, yeah, it, it, I don't, yeah, I know. Yeah, and I'm a but Londoner. I
6: like you because you're honest. <laughs> now, other people, but I thought you were French or Brazilian <laughs> or i I'm like, mate, stop lying it's okay you can admit I'm an Afro Scot <laughs> it's tripping you out I get it this is why I don't have my own show on TV yet because they wasn't ready for it they're like no no we can't have black people with different accents it'd be like if you were a white Jamaican they'd be like nah nah you're making that up you can't be white and a Jamaican that's yes exactly you do what get is it, white Jamaicans it. you do but it's, it's just
5: as weird and when I when I hear white <laughs> Jamaicans you, know you do have to look at them and like i don't understand <laughs> what's going is on actually here? yeah yeah. yeah so that's
6: yeah. yes yeah. So, but it's handy because i think one of the things about being a woman um any woman if you think about it in reality but if we look at women of color particularly is because of the way popular culture has moved um from the 80s to now and colonialism and this that and the next thing um there are perks to being marginalized which is mm-hmm. you you should take hold of it, which is what I'm trying to do with the book and actually utilize it. But because because you're so marginalized and alienated, you can literally do anything mm. and nobody's shocked by it because they kind of think you're going to do something mad anyway. Um, <laughs> but I'm all about taking a negative thing and turn it into a positive thing. So when I wrote the book, I was literally responding to the like, I'd get like 30 messages on social media. How'd you be a model? how do you do this? What did you do as an agent? Da-da-da-da. And I'm like answering all these questions constantly for like two years to the point where my real life is breaking down. So then I wrote this blog, ended up trending worldwide on Twitter. So that's how I ended up writing a book and i i thought about it i was like you know what? i don't want to tell stories of people who have been exploited and i don't want to tell stories of like rape and this and that instead of doing that i want to tell people what to do and make it very clear and answer the questions such as no agent will ever charge you any money any agent that asks you for money is not a real fashion agent agents sign you because they're going to make money off you they take commission on that and that's how they make their money so you know it's, the book is more about prevention education this is what you need to do this is not cool actually even when you're saying this is also not cool and letting people know that people like myself are trying to and people like karen franklin and hillary alexander are trying passionately to give our industry some level of um, legal representation because the fashion industry is like a trillion dollar industry but has no regulation and has no legislation. And I'm pretty sure it's probably one of the only industries on the planet other than art that has no legislation whatsoever. And that's, if for those at home who are listening, if you imagine like FIFA times it by like 20 and then say there's no laws, there's no regulation, there's no legislation, there's no minimum wage, there's no help if something happens to you, agents can do anything they want. That is the situation with fashion and I think a lot of people are really not aware that that is the situation within the fashion industry. There's no regulation Mm. whatsoever. So I'll be working closely with different organisations like Equity and they're now going to start representing models for the first time. Traditionally, they only did actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been to Westminster and Scott Parliament and and talked about the things. And it's just because you're in a situation where your agent is basically owns you you cannot do anything and that puts pressure on you because when you go to a job you might be in a situation where you don't want to do something but you have to do it because you might lose your agent or your agent might not book you again or that client might not book you again so there's so many different levels to the exploitation that happens in our industry Um, and I just feel That actually, do you know what? Human beings, we go through so much and the world we're living in right now is so chaotic. It doesn't need me to start talking negatively. I'd rather talk about, well, this is what you need to do to get to where you want to be and this is how you can do it and focus on making that true and bringing that through because none of the guides, none of the blog, you go on Google, you see certain people who I won't mention their names, how to become a model coming up. It's completely vague. It's completely parochial. None of it is actually telling you what you need to actually know to become a model. And it's almost like they don't want you to know. And I don't know if that's just like the very British thing of, well, I had to work this hard, so you're going to have to work Mm -hmm. as hard as me. Um, but there's a lot of unnecessary suffering and a lot of exploitation because with an industry that's so massive, you've got all these other like, smaller companies and you know, organisations that spring up around it that are very misleading. And what happens a lot of the time is people get caught up in those ones which are nothing mm-hmm. to do with reality that teach you the wrong things. They teach you, you know, maybe how you're walking is wrong, using arms, wearing makeup. You know, I'm, In my book, I make it really clear particularly for young girls, if you want to be a model, you cannot wear makeup. You need to walk down the street with no makeup on 24-7 because you will never be scouted wearing a face full of makeup. And as we can see, what are young girls doing now? It's Mm -hmm. like proper,
1: ready, you know.
6: And the thing is, you can't get scouted looking like that because if an agent or a scout sees you, they're not going to say take off your makeup. They're going to walk past you and go to the next person. So it's just putting in really important information like that. So say you were approached by somebody looking a certain way, you'd probably know that it probably wasn't true and they probably didn't know what they were talking about because actually that's not what they're looking mm-hmm.
1: for. What's the one thing you would want young girls going into the industry to know about it?
6: I think for me that you do get made to feel like if you don't do everything you're told to do you cannot have a career now I think that if you've got enough charisma and you're really good at your job as well that you can actually overcome so I don't do uh, laundry, I don't do bikini I don't do partially nude, and that's just out of respect for my family. I'm really not prudish at all, but my family would not have it. And that has made my career extremely difficult. I've not had a lot of opportunities. And also had another problem where I had got dropped at a young age from a really big agent in London because uh, I'm like 30 now, so 15 years ago, like if you're a black girl like me, you had to have a weave and you had to have straight hair. Mm. You were not getting work if you had an afro. Um, but I, it was really important to me to do that so I lost a lot of opportunities but what I would say is the reality of life is if you're doing something and you have the drive and the determination to do well you might have to go a little bit left and right mm-hmm. to show that you are brilliant but eventually if you keep being brilliant keep smashing it, they have to use you mm. and they will use you yes. do you know what I'm saying?
1: Brilliant wow. advice, I wish mm-hmm. that I could just skywrite that for every young girl thank you so much for joining us here on Badass from at XL it's been brilliant talking to you if people want to hear more from you where can they find you
6: you can get me on Instagram at Eunice Lumide that's E-U-N-I-C-E O-L-U-M-I-D-E and the book is out now it just came out and it's called How to Get Into Fashion available Amazon Waterstones Blackwell everywhere
0: everywhere
1: (laughs) go buy it because it's amazing (laughs) coming up next on Badass Women's Hour we are going to be announcing our Badass of the Week Awards Badass
4: Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio
1: To the award for badass woman of the week. This is the moment when we highlight the truly great, incredible women who have done something amazing, and we want to celebrate them. So we are getting the gold envelope ready any second now. We're going to get a statuette, maybe of a, a naked woman. And oh, there's no female for Oscar, is there? Is it Oscar yeah. and Oscarina to hand out. An Oscarina. Uh, we are each week. The three of us are going to compete for who has the baddest badass of the week not bragging i did win it last week uh, there is a leaderboard for the first <laughs> week harriet of course yeah. it's like well, it's you know. fine you've just won one week <laughs> i just you know just wanted to remind you, Calm down, just, so you know, Calm down. just so you know just uh, so you know this week we are gonna start with emma Emma, who is your badass of the week? So mine is
4: a lady called Dame Stephanie Shirley. And I must admit, even though she's got a TED Talk um, out that's had uh, like so many millions of views, I hadn't really heard about her until about six months ago. And uh, somebody I knew was working with her. And I started to listen to her... Uh, audiobook which is her life story and I suddenly realised what an absolutely incredible woman so she's uh, still alive today, she's about 85 she's now um, does a lot of philanthropic things but she was revolutionary within, She's basically an IT pioneer so what she did is she used to work in IT uh, in the sort of 50s or 60s and then she set up her own business but she had to change her name to Steve to get ahead in the IT industry but what she did is she set up what a lot of modern businesses are operating like this she's been doing it for like decades where she tapped into a lot of stay-at-home mums and got them to write code so she was kind of the first person to have this freelance talent network Uh, and what I loved is that she built this business she made a ton of money the way she operated her business was really Beautiful. So she floated, uh, floated on the stock exchange, and she gave all of her senior execs all instantly became millionaires that day because they all had shares in her business. Mm -hmm. Um, She's just really inspiring businesswoman, and she now you know has got multi multiple. I think she's worth like 70 million, maybe even more. I think she was worth about 200 million at the time she floated. Uh, and she's not interested in buying super yachts or living that lifestyle. She still works six days a week. She just puts uh, so much back. She had a son who was autistic. Uh, her biography is absolutely brilliant. If you are a female entrepreneur and you want to hear someone who is a badass businesswoman, but also just had just ran her business with the most amazing values... Generosity.
1: Dame Stephanie Shirley is my badass of the week. And I think, I could be wrong on this, but I think she came to the UK on Kinder Transport.
4: Uh, yeah, so she, yes, she a refugee from the Holocaust. Yes, and so she had nothing, and I and I I do find that interesting with entrepreneurs. I do wonder that if you've had a you know a childhood where you've literally she had nothing, mm. she came to the UK with nothing, was um, fostered and almost had to sort of rebuild her life. That your attitude to risk is a bit different. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but anyway, she's not had an easy life at all. Even her even running her business was not a you know, smooth sailing. But there's just phenomenal women. I just absolutely, yeah, totally fangirled her.
1: Okay. She's a good call. I've, I've actually interviewed was... her twice and she's probably one of the most impressive people I know. So I think it's a strong contender strong this contender. week. Um, strong yes. contender. Get in. Natalie, who is yours? Rihanna?
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, although I did consider it. Uh, my badass of the week is actually a group. Um, It is the women of the Hub Community Kitchen. Uh, They are a group of women that came together um, post the Grenfell fire uh, tragedy to support each other. Uh, And this week they released a cookbook, a charity cookbook book called Together, which has over 50 amazing recipes. And the foreword was actually written by the Duchess of Sussex. Um, And the book was her
1: idea. Meghan Markle for anyone who's not yeah. familiar with the official title
5: um and the women are absolutely amazing they are from all over the world a lot of them have lived you know, they grew up in the UK they live they live in west london uh, and so having just getting to know them they're women that live local to me um and getting to know them through these recipes and the little stories that introduce each each recipe some of them recipes that they just made up at home and some of them that have been passed down from generation to generation it's just absolutely heartwarming and the book is also beautiful and so i I, i've actually fallen out of love with cooking i pretty much home deliver food (laughs) most evenings and i've been inspired to start cooking again and Buying ingredients and planning out the sorts of things I want to cook each week, and so if anything changes for me, it might be that I eat more than two or three meals a week that have not been made by a chef in some <laughs> other kitchen somewhere else.
1: Fabulous. They're, they're my badasses of the week. It's a good call. I like that one. Um, so I also have a group this week. Um, so I have a group which is the female workers of McDonald's um, in ten different ten different cities across the U.S. On Tuesday, they came together to have their own Me Too movement. So uh, apparently there has been pretty much rampant sexual harassment in the fast food chains industry. Wow! It gets reported all the time because it's run on franchise level, doesn't get taken seriously. Nobody pushes it up the chain. Uh, workers have in the US particularly have very few rights. Mm. If they don't turn up for shifts, if they protest about something, if they don't like their manager, they can be fired the next day with no nobody to really protest it to Um, and there was a lot of sexual harassment going on because most of the managers and most of the franchise holders are men most of the workers are female lots and lots of sexual harassment and they didn't have anyone to complain to about it so a group of women came together talked about what was going on in their respective restaurants and agreed that as a collective they would go on strike and we go on strike here in the UK it's a big deal it is a huge deal in the Mm. US you know it's a much much bigger thing they would have no rights they could be fired they could be let go um And they came together and they formed a committee including workers, corporate and franchise representations and national women's groups. So they brought people in to support them. They went on strike and they're demanding that McDonald's, they marched to the head office in Chicago to demand that McDonald's actually start to take it seriously and consider it something that has to be dealt with by the company as a whole, Mm -hmm. not on an individual basis. And I just thought that was really badass. So they're my badasses of the week. Wow. Mm So, let's have a starter poll. What do we think? Me. Mm, me. <laughs> Given you can't vote for yourself, who would you vote for? Em.
4: Uh I, I think Natalie's. I mean, I love the, what the women are doing with McDonald's, but I just feel like, you know, for something so lovely to come out of something that's been so awful is um, a real credit to, you know, resilient, yeah. h- mm-hmm. resilient women. So,
1: Nat? I vote for me. You
5: can't vote for yourself. I actually vote for the McDonald's woman. Oh, stop. It's about the collective, that collective Collective power and marching to head office
1: I mean also that was a super smart vote because I now feel I'm voting for Nat as well so we're going to have a little <laughs> internal decision and think about it I'm going to think about it and while I think about it I'm going to tell you that if you want to talk to us during the week if you've got a badass of the week you want to nominate come find us on social media tweet us at badass Women's hour, HR at badass Women's hour, our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook all the socials uh, you can come and talk to us individually as well you can come find me at Harriet Minter Nat at Nat D. Campbell and Emma at Emma Sexton. I've been thinking about it, Ems, and it's Are tough you? because, you know, I love Dame Stephanie. I do genuinely love her and I think she's badass. And I'm gonna suggest that we maybe bring her back in as a secondary contestant in a few weeks' time. But this week, I'm afraid Nat takes it. I I'm think, gonna vote yeah. for the Collective Women from Renfeld and graciously. Book. One, two, three, four! This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it.